morning, good morning. Hey, my name is Dave, one of the pastors here at Sedaris. If you've got a Bible, would you grab it? And we're going to be in the book of Acts today. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. There's some in the seat back in front of you, these black Bibles look like this. And uh, we're actually going to be, if you grab one of those Bibles, we're going to be on page 984. 984, uh, nearer the back of your Bible to the front. This is in the New Testament or the Second Testament. So this is the writings after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that his apostles, those he sent, that's what apostle means, um, put together, or those that were rolling with the apostles uh, helped to compile. And the book of Acts that we'll be in, Acts chapter 17, it is a account of everything that happened after Jesus' ascension. So really the beginning of the church, the Jesus movement, after Jesus was no longer on the scene, he was reigning on high with the Father in heaven, and he says he's going to come again. So Acts is everything that happens uh, while the apostles are still alive, those who walked and talked with Jesus. So Acts 17, page, let me say it one more time, 984, if you're using the Black Bible, you could also Google as well. So I don't know who you are. Somebody in this room needs this message, uh, and you weren't here last week because God decided to take my voice away last week. I felt fine, I felt great, but my voice was gone. And uh, I don't know who you are, but we're glad you're here. So pay special attention if you missed last week. God wanted to save this one for you. And we had a fantastic, I mean, uh, oh, I wish you could have been here last week. It was such a reminder for me as my voice was literally taken away. I just sat in the balcony during worship and just wept at what God continues to do. Even if he takes my voice away, he spreads his good news of grace and love in Jesus Christ through y'all, and it's such a good reminder of that, and I was just like weeping, just saying like, if it never comes back, right, like you lose your voice, it's like that's my instrument, that's my thing, I can't play guitar, I've tried, I can't, I can't play drum. I can't, I can't, they won't let me in the kids ministry, I, there's nothing I can do, the only thing I can do is talk, and it's like, God took it away, but yeah, I could praise and worship, no sound was coming out, <laughs> but I was giving my heart to the Lord, just saying, yes God, not I, but through you and your people. So last week was great. It was a Sabbath Sunday where we just rested. God said rest. So today we're back. My voice is back. The message has been simmering. Let's go, let's go, because there's a lot of amazing work to do. We're going to be looking at this famous scene in the city of Athens. And if you're on our weekly email, we sent out a picture of a giant rock. That's from the city of Athens. That's the Areopagus. That's a famous rock where philosophers of old would go and discuss new things. And we'll see that text. The Apostle Paul enters into that framework and is invited to share this information he has about this God who sent his son who died on a cross and who rose to life to prove that he is the true God. So this is super exciting. Now, uh, before we get into uh, reading it, I want to just ask a question. We'll come back. You'll understand why near the end of the sermon. So pay attention. Um, do you know why all the planets orbit around the sun? Do you know why? Did you, I mean, I'm sure you were taught at some point why that is. I had to look it up <laughs> this week just to make sure I understood it right. It's because the sun has more mass than any of the other planets. And so its mass connects the planets from spinning out into the universe. So if, if there was no sun, guess what would happen? Earth would just be on, shot out into space on a line until it 
came into orbit of another mass greater than it, and then it would start to revolve that. So that, that's why we orbit around the sun. Press pause on that. You'll need to know that for later. So before we get there, let me reset the five C's. We're in five C's, and we're doing some case studies. So the five C's, uh, if you're new with us, um, this is sort of a vision series for us of if you walk through this cycle of the five C's, which are connection, which leads to conversation, which leads to consideration, which leads to conviction and confession, and confession then reconnects you to connection. See how it works? If you run this five C's, you'll experience life and growth in your relationship with God and your relationship with one another as just a human being created in God's image. You'll grow. You'll change. You'll become a better version of yourself. You'll become more effective for the kingdom of God. All good things if you run all five of the C's. So then we... We finished those lectures. You can go back and listen to those. Um, we call them lectures because they're, they're long. And uh, now we're doing case studies. So today is a case study in the book of Acts, and we'll see how Paul works, helps the Athenians work through the five C's when it comes to this new information they get about this Jesus that they've never heard of. So we'll see him connect. We'll see him converse. We'll see him set them up for consideration, which is to help them clear what do they really need to consider here. And then we'll see God step in, which is always conviction is where God steps into the process and we see conviction happening or lack of conviction. And some will even confess Jesus is the Christ. So to set the stage, and then I'll read, picture this place in ancient Athens uh, where people would go to discuss the biggest ideas. The, 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 the only thing I could think about it, equivalent to it in our day, would be like the TED Talks. Like this is like the place, like the Athenians were known as sort of the philosophical center of the Roman Empire, still even at this time, even though Rome had now conquered Greece and it was part of the empire. But they were still known as, these, this is where new ideas come, and, and they were serious about new ideas. So it's kind of like getting invited to the TED Talk. And we're not talking like one of these offshoots. This is like not TEDx. This is like the TED Talk, you know, Silicon Valley. This is like the good stuff. So Paul ends up there. And Paul will give us a model for how to navigate, how to honor, how to respect others in a pluralistic society like the one that we live in, where there's lots of ideas. There's lots of worldviews. There's lots of religions. You probably work in a workplace where... People believe all sorts of different things. Paul's going to give us a way to navigate through that with reverence and respect for people while still helping them to see this new information about Jesus. So maybe you've, you've, have you ever asked the question or wondered, how can I affirm truth that I find in other religious traditions? Have you asked that question? Probably most of you have. Or have you ever wondered, if all religions are actually equally true, if you haven't wondered that, you know somebody who thinks that way, maybe that's you. Maybe that's where you're at. You just think there's truth in every religion. And I'm going to actually show you today that that's actually the right way to think. But yet, there's a more complete way to think. So yes, Paul will say, there's truth in everything. And in, 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 Truth doesn't actually, uh, it's not exclusively the, the, in the ownership of Christians, but there is a kind of truth that is 
exclusively a part of the Christian faith. So we'll get to see the difference in that today. So Paul will say, yes, there is truth in every religion worldview, but not all truth is exactly the same. So having said that, all truth is useful to lead one to more truth, right? So that's why you can affirm it because it is useful to lead you towards a greater truth, a different kind of truth. You can think about it like every truth that you find in any worldview or religion is a breadcrumb leading back to the full loaf, okay? Paul's going to show us how to do that. So with this, all this in mind, let's read this very famous account of the Apostle Paul in Athens, Greece. Ready? Acts 17, verse 16. Here we go. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshipped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? So let me pause. What is this ignorant show-off trying to explain? Well, the first thing I, I want you to see here is Paul is distressed, okay? So um, maybe this word isn't even strong enough for the original Greek. Like, he is stirred up so deeply He's worried about these people that clearly are religious and devoted to their gods, but they don't have the full truth that Paul believes that he has. So he's distressed. This is, this is um, a man who truly cares about people. He wants them to know the one true God. And so he goes and he, it says, reasoned with them. So this is, um, he entered into dialogue with them, deep conversation uh, with them. And um, he does have a goal in mind. Like his conversation isn't cocktail conversation. He's moving them, probably using something like the Socratic method, to move them towards what he's about to present to them. So there's, 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 there's real intentionality about his conversation with them. Now, some of these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, who are kind of the biggest philosophical groups of the day, they don't necessarily uh, like this guy. But they're interested. They're interested. So who are the Epicureans? The Epicureans was a philosophical group or worldview, and they would be equivalent to what we might call materialists today. They, did, they believed that there is... They still sort of in some way believed in the gods of the Greek pantheon and then what became the Roman pantheon of gods. So they, they gave some sort of... Uh, know, attention to them. They, they wouldn't say they're nothing, but they didn't believe that the gods actually intervened. They didn't believe that there was such thing as providence. They didn't believe that people had souls. They believed that from dust to dust, we're just physical beings. And so what they tried to do is live uh, a detached, sort of tranquil or non-anxious life. They tried to get to a place of, of a lack of desire um, because that's what they thought it would mean like to live in this material world best, to not be tossed to and fro by the emotions and whatnot. So this is, these are the Epicureans. Now, because they didn't believe that in souls, and they believe this from dust to dust, this is our only life, they did not believe there's life beyond the grave. They did not believe in an afterlife. 
So, this is important, they didn't believe in the resurrection, which we'll see Paul bring up later in his conversation. Now, who are the Stoics? The Stoics, they weren't materialists, so they did believe people had souls. They believed each individual had the spark of the divine, which they actually called the logos. If you're a student of scripture, you realize the Bible talks about the logos. So the people had this divine spark, and they thought the gods were active, lively, interacting in human affairs. So you can see very different even than the Epicureans. They thought humans were bound together in this universal brotherhood. They thought that all humans should work together and live together in peace because each and every one had this logos, this divine spark. So they did believe that there was life beyond the grave, but not a physical one. They believed that the spiritual was higher than the physical. So they believed when you die, you sort of shed the confines of the physical and your spirit lived on. So they too did not believe in a bodily resurrection, which Paul is about to talk about. This is just important background. So they come to Paul, they hear what he's talking about. We don't know everything that Paul said, but we realize he said some things that these guys look at him and uh, they call him, in some translation it says, a babbler. The actual Greek word means seed speaker or seed picker. That's a bit of a derogatory term. It's, in the Greek it's spermologos, which means that you are um, picking, like a bird, picking up ideas here and there. You're picking them up and you're gathering them in your nest and they don't really relate to one another. They don't make sense. They're just like a bird, just picking up indiscriminately all these ideas, throwing them together, and then acting like you're profound. That's what they were saying to Paul. What a seed picker, this guy. I'm sure some of you have called me seed picker. I forgive you. Okay. So here's this guy scrapping together all these weird ideas, playing them off as if he's got some new profound philosophy. But Paul is not dismayed. He continues on. He continues the conversation. Here we go. Others replied, well, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he, is telling the good news, because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you are presenting because what you say sounds strange to us and we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Interesting note here. They took him. So there's some debate whether Paul was taken to the TED Talk <laughs> uh, against his will or sort of in handcuffs or something because the Areopagus was also became known as the tribunal. Um, they used the word both for the place, the rock, where they would meet, and also the tribunal that often met at the rock where civil and criminal cases were. So it's like some scholars think, oh, he was taken again. You know, you're sort of arrested and said, come and present your ideas. Hard to know exactly what's going on here. But it was, um, it was a pretty formal, intense um, opportunity that he was given to talk. He was taken there. So they brought him there. So verse 22, Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. This was a compliment. He was saying, I can see how devoted you are to your gods. So he's setting them up, you know, he's, he's making sure they know that he respects them for the way that they seek after the divine. Verse 23, for as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. 
So Paul had walked through the city, he'd connected with the city, he'd looked around, there were temples everywhere, statues everywhere to all sorts of gods, and he found one altar with the inscription, quote, to an unknown god. Why would they do this? Well, they didn't want to upset some god that they didn't know about. So it was done in great reverence and respect. Perhaps we don't know everything. They were open to the, to the idea that there were other gods, or at least one other god that they didn't know about. So they created an altar to him. And Paul saw that, and he brought that information into his conversation. See, he did the work to connect with this new culture, these new people, and understand how they thought about the divine. Then he goes on to say, Therefore, what you worship in ignorance... This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands, or though, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man, he has made everything, or sorry, every nationality to live over the whole earth, and he's determined their appointed times, their boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God, that they might seek him. And perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So he's quoting. He said, even some of your own poets get this right. For we are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Okay, so he takes the conversation from, I see this unknown God. You're actually right. You guys are right. There is a God that's out there that you don't know about, that you have no temple to or shrine to. I want to tell you about this God. He's actually the God who made all things. And he's not like these other gods, these gods that you, could, that you need to serve them or build houses for them. The world is his house. The universe is his house. He gave everything. He doesn't need you to bring him offerings because he is the one that brings you what you need. That's what the true God is, the unknown God. So, you know, he's speaking to them out of love and compassion. And then he quotes from their own poets, from their own philosophers, for we are God's offspring. Why does he do this? We'll come back to this in a second. We'll spend the back half of this sermon just talking about this idea. He wants them to know that there's some truth, that they found some truth about who God is. It's incomplete. It's not full, but he, he wants to recognize it. He doesn't say, oh, you're idiots. You're completely wrong. You have no idea. He said, even some of your own poets get some of this truth right. And we'll come back and we'll ask and the question of how and and how Paul does it and how we might do it to build a bridge from truth that is found towards the ultimate truth, the greater truth of Jesus Christ. Paul does it. Now the first, the first hint of how he does it is look at how he distinguishes what they're worshiping from who he worships. Did you notice it? Go back, go back. Look at verse 23. So after he says, I see the inscription of the unknown God, he says, therefore... What you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. So Paul is saying, you guys worship a what 
like these stone images, these carved images, these altars, these temples, you're, you're worshiping a what? He's saying, the God that I know is a who. He's a person. You see what I'm saying? So that's, t- see how this is starting to work? And we'll, we'll talk, I got a whole diagram about it. You're going to love it. Um, how truth is becoming more personal. We're going from the what to the who. Have you ever done that? Have you ever worshiped God as if he's a what? And then you came to realize he's a who? Paul loves these people. He wants them to know. You don't have to worship some image, some stone, some building. You can worship a person. You can worship a who. Wow. See, we're getting into this language of relationship. So out of Paul's great love, he just tells them, I know the unknown God, and you can know him too. And then he gets a little intense, (laughs) because it's okay to get intense in a good conversation. Here's what he says. After he's saying, we can't just make images by human art of, of the almighty God. Verse 30, he says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, he's saying, God is overlooking the time of ignorance. God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. Now remember, he's already talked about Jesus and the resurrection. So he's clearly speaking here about Jesus. By the man he has appointed, that's Jesus. And God has provided proof of this to everyone by raising this man, Jesus, him from the dead. Okay, so now he's saying, this is the thing you need to consider. I mean, anybody could just come in on the Areopagus and bring a new idea. They loved hearing new ideas. And he's saying like, this isn't just some other God. This is a God that is over all your gods. And the way God proved it, that he had appointed this man Jesus, that Jesus is God in the flesh, is through the resurrection. This is what you need to consider. Now remember what the Epicureans and the Stoics believed. They had no concept of bodily resurrection. They would have denied it. So they're like, whoa, this is a game changer. This is totally new. If there was a man who claimed to be God in the flesh, and he actually rose from the dead, Paul says, it is proof that this is that unknown God that you know not of. The who instead of the what. The one that, you, that is due your worship and allegiance as opposed to all these other gods. It's by the resurrection. So he, he's clearly narrowing in through his conversation the thing he wants them to consider. Perhaps you were wrong about the resurrection from the dead. For the Epicureans, it would have been like that there is no soul or spirit. And for the Stoics, that there's no bodily resurrection. Whoa, this is a new idea. So they consider, some at least, and what happens? Verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, see, they know what to consider, (laughs) the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. (laughs) He is a seed picker. He's talking about resurrection. Everybody knows that's not true. Even the Epicureans know that's not true, said the Stoics. Even the Stoics know that's not true, said the Epicureans. They ridiculed him. But others said, others said, we'd like to hear just a little bit more from you about this again. Just a little bit. 
just like to hear a little bit more. What's happening? Conviction is starting to set root. Uh-oh. This guy says some crazy stuff, and it's not sounding crazy to us. That's how you know it's conviction. This is some crazy stuff, yet I'm not... He's not a seed picker. Something's up. You see that? Uh, let's hear a little bit more from this fellow. That's how you know conviction. Like, I've always thought those Christians were crazy, and then not so crazy. Uh-oh. Conviction setting in. You see that? The Spirit of God is working. They truly open themselves up to the notion that perhaps we were wrong about this resurrection. If there was a man, could it have been? And the Spirit of God begins to confirm, and they start to say, uh-oh, I don't, feel rid- I, don't, I don't want to ridicule this guy. In fact, I want to hear some more. You see that? See, no convictions beginning. Like, uh-oh, that crazy thing doesn't sound so crazy anymore. How could that be? The Holy Spirit revealing transcendent divine truth. So that begins to happen for some, not all, for some. And then what happens? So Paul left their presence. I love this part of the story. Paul, you're right there. Hammer it home. Nail it. You got him. They're, they're like thinking you're not crazy, some of them. Take them all the way. And he's like, see you guys later. <laughs> you, know, you know where I'm staying. What, what is he doing? He trusts so much. It's not about him. It's not about his gift of persuasion. Though he has a gift to teach, of course, he realizes for those who aren't ridiculing him, God's now involved. He's done his part. He's connected with them. He's, he's had a conversation with them. He'd help them consider the right thing. And so he feels totally comfortable to walk away. He knows God will do the rest. He's done his part. So important to remember this about the five C's. What is my part? Connect, have a great conversation, help them identify what is the thing that they need to consider, then God moves in. For some, not for all. And then look what happens. Look at this. Paul leaves their presence, verse 34. However, some people joined him, and they believed, including Dionysius. Um, look at this word here. The Areopagite. What do you think that means? Remember I talked about that council or tribunal? He's a part of that group. He's part of the group that always met at the Areopagus. He's part of that inner circle. So one of the, he's probably one of the top philosophers in that community. He joins Paul. And then there's a woman named Damaris. Amazing. And others with them. So some of them move all the way to confession. They're following of Paul and, and, and becoming part of the church and going on this new movement. They are confessing with their feet, their actions, their presence, that they've had conviction in their heart that Jesus is risen from the dead, this unknown God they now know, and they change and repent from old worship to new. That's their confession. Isn't it beautiful? This is the five C's playing out. Not for all, but for some. Connection, verse 16, conversation is typically the longest part in the whole process, just to be clear. Could take many conversations. Paul's having conversations in the marketplace. He's getting invited to the rock. He's doing it all. That's going from verse 17 all the way to verse 29. Then he sets up the consideration, verse 30 to 31. Does this resurrection prove? And then conviction sets in in verse 32. And then we have confession in verse 34. So you see the five C's playing out. And it's beautiful. 
and we say amen. Thank you, God. Lives are changed. God is glorified. So now, you ready for my diagram? You guys have been, oh, everybody's been waiting. So excited. I've been very excited to show this to you. I was sharing it with, a, I came up with it on a, on a, at a coffee shop on a napkin. So you know it's good. <laughs> okay. Let's say you know it's good. So this here, if you couldn't tell, is a series of circles. Some circles are bigger than the other circles. Very clear. I want to show you now how Paul uses truth that he finds in other places, in other religions, in other worldviews, how he uses that then to draw people in towards truer truth, okay? So hang with me here. Who knows how long this will take? I mean, I wasn't about to practice this and then, like, have to clean this board, okay? So I have not done this. Okay, so let's see how it goes. I have time for that. Um, now, I have to say this. If you're not yet a Christian in the room, we're so glad you're here, I'm going to talk as if I'm right, <laughs> okay? So I'm going to put at the center of this circle. So think of this as like a, like a target, like a bullseye, right? An archer's bullseye. At the center of it, I am going to claim that Jesus Christ is the center of all truth, okay? Maybe not a surprise to you. Jesus Christ, and that's important that I say that. Who is Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is the physical manifestation, God in the flesh, okay? So God is in, encapsulated in this, but very specifically in the person of Jesus Christ, who walked this earth, who died on a cross for our sin, and who God the Father rose from the dead to prove that he was his son. So this is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. It is the center, in my worldview, of all truth. Okay? But that doesn't mean, if you're shooting an arrow at this thing, you hit up here, right here. Okay? Not bad. You hit, you hit the bullseye. That's true. You got truth. You've got truth. You hit the bullseye here, well, that's a little closer to the truth. You hit the bullseye here, that's even closer. You hit the bullseye here, closer yet. See what's happening here? One of the things we want to avoid, because people say, so, man, I don't, I don't know about that Christianity. It's so exclusive. They think they're right and everybody else is wrong. No, we think there's truth all around. If anyone holds to a worldview or a religious um, opinion, they're holding to it because there's something true in it. Like, worldviews don't just, like, you can't, if you can't live them at all, if they're not connected to truth at all, they will fade away. So people have truth all around. So you can affirm people when, when they speak of their own religious tradition, their own religious opinion, their own ideas about who God is. You can affirm them and say, I see some truth in that, just like Paul does. Your poets even say this. Now, that's not everything, if I think this is true, that there is a God, of course I cannot affirm if somebody says there is no God. So it's not every statement in every worldview or every religion. See what I'm saying? But there, are, there always is something you can find, and you can use that as a breadcrumb to bring them closer to the center of the tizzy pot. That's what the good stuff is. So let me just show you how this works. This isn't scientific, and I didn't necessarily talk to God about this, 
about if I'm going to put, I'm going to categorize here. So remember, there's truth in all of this. But here's what I would say. I would put materialism out here at the edge of the bullseye. Why would I do that? Well, materialism says there is no God. All we have is the physical world. That seems very far from this notion of God. So I put it out here. But there's still truth in it. We'll see that in just a second. You take one step in, one ring in. You can put something like uh, right here, like I'll call this spiritualism. Spiritualism, okay? What do I mean by spiritualism? This would be things... um, This would be like pantheism or panentheism, meaning all things are divine, like all the universe is is spirit, or the universe is God, and we're all part of the universe. Um, You find this in traditions like Hinduism or Buddhism. Um, A lot of Eastern thought is spiritualism. They're not materialists. They believe in the spiritual, but the spiritual is what? Uh, Non-personal. In fact, the point in Buddhism is to Release yourself from the constricting notion that you are an individuated person. Once you're released from that, then you'll be released from desire, and therefore desire won't rule you. So in some ways, it's similar to Epicureanism in that the goal is to not let your desire control you, but the way we do it is by recognizing spiritual words. So that's spiritualism. Okay? Next in here, I would call this you know, you could put here, you could put um, uh, polytheism. Okay? Polytheism. Poly meaning multiple, theism meaning gods. So, most of the religious opinion that Paul was speaking into was polytheism. Now, look at that. That's a bit closer than sheer materialism, even though I said the Epicureans are materialists. Um, polytheism says there's multiple gods, not just one god, many gods. And, uh, of course, we all know this. We've studied about this. There's movies made about polytheism. Um, And you see it's a little bit closer because these gods typically have names. They're personal in a sense. So it's getting a little bit closer to our idea of a personal god who came in the flesh. Um, But it's not all the way there. So what would I put right here? What would I put right here? Right here what I would put is um, what we would call uh, monotheism. Mono meaning one. Theism meaning God. So, any worldview or religion that believes that there's one God. So, there's many of these. Things like Judaism, Islam. Many forms of Christianity fall short of getting all the way to the center because they believe in one God, but he's yet distant. So, this would be things like deism or the clockwork God who made the universe, spun it into place, and then steps away. It'd be monotheism. Again, see how we're getting closer to this notion? So there's a lot of truth in there, things that we can affirm, but yet not quite there. And then, of course, we get all the way to the center. And we have Jesus Christ. Not no God, not just impersonal spirit, not multiple gods, not just one God, but one personal God who put on humanity and died for our sin. We cannot earn our way into his presence. We can only receive his grace into his presence. Very different notion. But yet there's truth. They've hit bullseye at some point. You can find it and use that to build a bridge towards this other thing. 
So let me show you how this works. You can do this both with general, I'm, I'm, I'm talking here big worldview categories, and I realize I'm using a broad brush here, but you can do that with individual statements as well. Let me show you how this works. I'm gonna go right over here. Uh, right here we have, I'm gonna call this version A of the statement. I'm not gonna write it, so if you take it, I'll, I'll write it once. Human beings are, uh, oops, innately <laughs> valuable, okay? I think I spelled that wrong. Forgive me, innately valuable. Like I said, some truth in that, but I might have spelled that wrong. Okay, so this is, a pr this is true, and most everyone in America affirms that, right? Now, out here at the edge, it's very vague. It's just human beings are innately valuable because they are. As you move closer, what you'll see is you'll get more specificity to that truth claim. So you've met people like that that just say they just are. Deal with it. Are there two ends in innately? Thank you. Okay. It's, it was bugging me. I knew it. I knew it. Okay. So I'm not going to rewrite it, but I'm just going to now move us in here, okay? So B might be like this. Human beings are innately valuable because it's best for the flourishing of human society. It works for everyone if we see people as innately valuable and treat them as such. And then we, gotta move it, we move in a little bit closer here to the, what I would consider the truth, because I consider this the truth. Uh, this is C. Human beings are innately valuable because they are created by God like his children, like the poet said, right? So God created us like him, therefore we have innate value. You see how we're getting more specific? And that's getting closer to my definition of why humans are innately valuable, but not all the way there. We could go one step further. And we, we could do D here. Okay? What does the statement D say? Statement D says, human beings are innately valuable because they were created in the image of God, not just by God, but in the image of God, and God says to respect them because of that. Now, it's not just Christians that believe that. Jews believe that. Um, I think even Muslims would believe some, some version of that. I can't, again, I expect so, because they are reading the Old Testament as well or at least parts of it. But that's not all the way to why I believe that humans are innately valuable. So there's a whole other one. This is, we'll call it E. Here's what I believe. Human beings are innately valuable because God has created them, God has created in His image and told us to respect them, and God Himself put on humanity in order that he might die as a substitute for the sins of all who would turn to him. And then God rose this Jesus back to life to prove that the debt was paid. Therefore, if God did that for me and for you and for every human being to give them that opportunity, we should respect the innate value of human life. See, it's a bit different. See, it's the, it's, it's the same in one sense, it's different in another sense. And I think this is how, in my opinion, all truth works. Three things. 
Notice as you move closer to the center, whether it's in big worldview systems or in a simple statement about human value, three things happen. One, the closer you get to the center, truth uh, becomes to be less vague and more specific. Less vague, more specific. Number two, truth becomes weightier. More profound reasons lie behind the truth statement, right? So to say they just are because they are is very different than saying they are because God put on humanity and died for humanity. You see how the weight, and each step is a little bit weightier. You feel the weight of, ooh, something different about the profoundness of the reason for the truth. And the third thing that I always see happening as we move towards the center is that truth becomes more personal, more personal, not less, more personal. So as you get towards the center, the truth becomes very personal. God puts on humanity, therefore how can humanity not be innately valuable? You see that? And each step along the way, it gets more personal. So think about this. I, I like, anytime, like anybody, anytime anyone utters truth, I want you to recognize that they've been given a gift. Even if it's the gift of recognizing, right? Like in America... We all believe this, but this isn't true all over the world or all over history. So when human beings are given this gift, even if it's super vague, impersonal, and there's no reason behind it, we, we say, what an amazing gift you've been given. Now, what's the, all, every truth, all truth is a gift. No matter what worldview or system it comes out of, it's all a gift. But if you've ever done white elephant exchange, what do you do? You always pick the heaviest gift. You want the most valuable gift? The most useful gift, the best gift, find it. It's heavy, right? So you're looking for the heaviest gift, and if you're giving gifts, right, the more personal the gift is, the, the better it is, right? And the more specific it is to the person you're giving it to, the better, right? So we see these things. Truth is a gift wherever you find it, but there's some gifts that are just better. The more personal, the weightier, the more profound, the more that they might affect and change the life, the better the truth. We can acknowledge that. And that's what I'm trying to show in my diagram. I'm trying to acknowledge that, okay? Every utterance, every delivery of truth is a gift. So treat it as such. But don't continue to act as if every gift is exactly the same. Some truth is weightier. Some truth is more true. Some truth is more profound. Some truth will affect the world more. Some truth will move the world more to where I think we long for it to go. How do we know what that truth is? Okay. So, here's what I think happens. I want you to stop thinking about my diagram now as a target. And maybe you already started thinking about this. I want you to start thinking about this now as a solar system. What truth has the greatest mass, is the weightiest, is the most profound, that sits on your chest, oh, and it's hard to get off. <laughs> it's the truth of Jesus Christ, died and risen for your sin. As you move out, you get a little bit further away from that truth. And the pull isn't quite as strong but it's still related to this truth. Like the reason it's orbiting at all in the truth solar system. Just as a side note, some people might ask, well, where is agnosticism? 
it's out here, okay? <laughs> this is agnosticism. Uh, and I don't mean to be derogatory, I just, agnosticism says we can't know truth, so we don't even shoot an arrow. So it's maybe not even out there. It's just floating in the abyss. It's saying, there's nothing I can know. I wholeheartedly deny that proposition. I believe truth to some degree can be known, so agnosticism is sort of floating out there. So I would, if you're an agnostic, I would encourage you to get on the map, <laughs> get somewhere, even if it's way out here to materialism. Because from there, the truth of Christianity still has some pull on you, meaning there's design in the world, there's order, there's logic. So where do I get that from ultimately? Where's the source of that pull? It's coming from this very personal God who created the world purposefully in this way so that we might study it and know it and talk about it. So even that is orbiting the ultimate mass, this truth, this weightiness, this gravity that is God in the, in the flesh in Jesus Christ. So here's, here's what happens in your life. I hope you being here is part of a journey. Think if you've got a rocket ship. Maybe you're in the rocket ship of agnosticism, and you're heading this way. Think I could draw a rocket ship? Nope. <laughs> okay. Uh, something like that. Woo! It looks a bit like a whale. But that's a rocket ship, clearly, because look, there's stuff coming out of it, okay? And um, so you use some of your rocket fuel, your intelligence, your, your conversation, your consideration, to begin to move into the orbit of this thing, just to see if, as you get closer, you start to feel the weight and the pull. And this has been my experience, and I, I know a lot of stories. As people get into the orbit, and the closer they get, they start to know that this feels different than the truth that they've experienced out here. They don't deny everything that they've always believed, but something about this personal, specific truth that God came in the person of Jesus begins to weigh on them in a way that nothing else has. See that? Now, maybe you're on this journey, and you're not yet sure to call this the center of the bullseye or the center of the solar system of truth. Here's what you're going to probably have to do. The closer you get, and you start to feel that pull, you're going to want to turn your rocket ship around. Again, this is a rocket ship, clearly. And you're going to try to head back to the safety of the outer ring, where you didn't feel all that pull on your life in every area of life. It's scary when you start to feel the gravity of the person of Jesus Christ. It feels like it's going to suck you in and take you and destroy you. That's what it feels like. And so you turn, and you have to use so much rocket fuel to get back out of its gravitational pull. When you're living out here, you feel like it's not so hard to deny this is true, but you get close to it, you've got to use a whole heck of a lot of rocket fuel to get out of its orbit. So you try so hard. So I meet people all the time that are trying so hard to deny what they've experienced or tasted. The Bible talks about tasting the truth of Jesus Christ, but not giving into it and trying so hard to get out of its orbit. Just recognize, if that's you, if you feel at times in your life that you've tried, just ask yourself, why did I have to spend so much energy to get out of the orbit when it seems so easy to come in? Maybe because it's the mass and the gravity, the weight of this truth is more true than other truths. Maybe there's something realer about this, so it's going to take you more to get away from it. Maybe you have friends like this. Be like Paul. Tell them, there's truth in what you believe, but 
let me, let me clear in. Let me give you some clarity about this. It's not going to absorb you and kill you and destroy you when you come this close to the sun. It's actually going to give you life and life that you didn't know was possible. And yes, you die to yourself, meaning you no longer have autonomy of your rocket ship. You have given it over to the Lord Jesus Christ. So in that sense, yeah, something dies, but a whole, mo- a whole lot more comes to life when you come in fully into the orbit of Jesus Christ. If you've experienced that, can you just say amen? If you've experienced giving in, amen? Okay. It's not death, it's life. But I get why it feels like it when you're coming close to it. It's a flaming ball of heat and light and glory. It's weighty. It feels like it's going to crush you because it's so true. And then it turns out to be easy, Jesus says. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's not what it looks like. Let yourself fall into the orbit of Christ and you'll find truth an explanation for everything that you've believed to be true, even in the past. So that's my diagram. Hopefully it's helpful. I, have, I could say much more. I have more planets in orbit than just the ones here, but we don't have time for that. So let's break it down now very clearly what's happening. Paul applies this pattern. He says, X is right, but for the wrong reason. He says, your poets were right, but for the wrong reason. Okay? So X is right, but for the wrong reason. A few weeks ago, I quoted Tupac Shakur. He's got a great line in one of his songs. He says, only God can judge me now. So Tupac is right, only God can judge. We're not his judges. I'm not your judge. No human being is a judge of another human being. Only God can judge me now. So he's right, but for the wrong reason. He doesn't mention anything about Jesus Christ being the judge that God has appointed and who rose from the dead to prove that Jesus Christ is the judge. So he's got something right, and now let's work with that. Why do you think that is, Tupac? Tell me where that comes from. Maybe it does come from a Christian worldview that he grew up in or something uh, along these lines, or some other worldview. I'm not a Tupac scholar. Let's look at another example. Hinduism is right that this life isn't the only life we live, right? Because they believe in what? Reincarnation. See? So they've made a truth claim, this 80, 90 years is not the only 80, 90 years we'll live. We can affirm that. True. But they've done it for the wrong reason. They believe in karma and that through reincarnation we might re-embody some other person, animal, or thing based upon how well we did in this iteration of life. So the right, they've got a true claim, this isn't the only life we live, but for the wrong reason. See how this works? How do we affirm truth when we see it, but not let it just stay there? How do we, like Paul, give them answers to questions that they only know to say, huh, I don't know. It's our job. God says, if you have more truth, share it. Some will respond to it. Some won't. But to not share it would be allowing them to believe a right thing for the wrong reason, which is not the weightiness of truth that will affect all of their life and ultimately bring worship and glory to the one true God. Um, Last night, 30 guys from our church, 
and a few friends of those guys came to watch a, a, a movie about C.S. Lewis's life. And C.S. Lewis, if you don't know who C.S. Lewis is, Chronicles of Narnia, probably one of the greatest intellects, not just Christian intellects, but intellects of the 20th century, one of the greatest writers, wrote many fantasy books as well as many just um, books of, of sort of lay theology. Um, so he's a Christian. You may know him as a Christian. He began here, way out on the edge of the solar system. He was a materialist. And he believed all sorts of true things. And he had some really good friends that came into his life, including J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings. They were buddies at college. And he just, they just began to challenge him. Like, why is it that C.S. Lewis loved uh, mythology? He was a literature, uh, doctorate of literature, ancient literature. He loved mythology. Him and Tolkien studied uh, mythology. And um, Tolkien said to him, hey, I see that you love and you feel deeply um, some of these stories about gods who would come and sacrifice and all these other myths. But yet when you read the Gospels of Jesus Christ, you're unmoved. And he said to him on a walk they were having, he said, here's the deal. The story of Jesus is just like those other myths. But one distinct difference. It actually happened. And Lewis had never allowed that thought into his mind. That all the things that he loved about the myths, which you might put, you know, he was bouncing between spiritualism and materialism. He liked these ideas of the myths that were revealing some truth that you couldn't see without the myths. He had never, though, allowed into his mind this idea that they were all shadows or ruminations of a one true myth that actually happened in the world. And when his buddy Tolkien just said, have you ever considered that perhaps why all those myths exist and why they resonate so deeply in your heart is because they're rooted in one true myth that actually happened in and through the person of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who came and died for his people that were created in his image. And, and it wrecked Lewis. And he considered it, and he had conviction. And the world's not the same because of it. 30 guys from Seattle are up watching a movie about his life because a friend See, Lewis was plenty smart. He could talk, you, talk circles around you. One of the smartest people that lived in the last hundred years. He'd never considered if it was true that God actually did come into the world, died, and rose again. So this is how we do it, friends. We find friends. We find people who may be believing true things for the wrong reason, or believing true things with no reason, or believing true things with half reasons, and we help them see the full, personal, specific reason behind these true things that they believe, and they find their home, they find their weight, they find their gravity in the person of Jesus Christ. And the world comes alive to them. And it's a beautiful thing. And we celebrate it. We love it. We share it.